Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. Welcome to August, the official beginning of fall, even if the weather is still midsummer. I am recording this, as always, here in North Carolina, and we on the Atlantic coast are sort of awaiting the arrival of what looks like Hurricane Isaiah's Category 1 storm, but you know, still no joke. You get to make my regular disclaimer about the hurricane paradox, that feeling among birders who are conscious of the destructive power of these tropical storms, but also a little bit excited about the possibility of storm-blown birds, turns and coastal goals, if you're really lucky, tube noses and tropic birds. I live in the Southeast, uh, so I've seen relatively weak storms that have blown in interesting birds and fairly strong storms that have been total busts on the bird front, but plenty of trouble in the way of wind and rain. It's it's a strange circumstance for sure. You never know exactly what you're going to get. And of course, multiplied by the pandemic, makes it a little more anxiety inducing. So I'm not sure what to expect. Uh, You never are. Well, we'll just keep our heads down and hope that for the best and maybe go look at the lake when this is all over, just in case there aren't too many trees down. Certainly by the time that this episode drops, it will be all over. I do have one quick announcement. I was asked by a friend of the podcast, Christy Esmahan, to announce a seminar from Travis Audubon, Austin, Texas. They are doing a Spanish for birders virtual class on August 17th. I know a lot of y'all love traveling in Latin America. I certainly do, and I can't wait for this all to be over so we can do that again. But if you want to be prepared, when you do, Christy is leading this program, Spanish for Birders. Looks like it's about $45 for non-members. The link, if you are interested, is in the show notes. On the show today, I have my friend Mike Bergen on to talk about the evolution of online birding. Mike is the creator of 10,000 Birds, the most popular birding blog on the internet, and one that has been around since just about the very beginning. I will say off the bat that Mike and I recorded this interview way back at the beginning of the pandemic, which was not that long ago, but only feels like it was eons ago. And I've been sitting on it for a while, so if the references are just a little bit off, or we certainly sound like we have not yet been beaten down by the ongoing pandemic nightmare, now you know the reason why. Enjoy this little time capsule of the early COVID age. We also talk about how people communicate online and how that has changed. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of July, very beginning of August, 2020. It's rare hummingbird season in the AVA area. We mentioned a couple of them recently, but they keep coming first. A green-breasted mango in South Texas was thought to be a one-day wonder for this widespread Middle American hummingbird until it showed up again a few days later. Texas has, by far, the most records of this species, as you would probably expect. Although there are records from Georgia, North Carolina, and shockingly, Wisconsin. And it is to Wisconsin that we go for the next bird, a Mexican violet ear in Crawford County, Wisconsin. This is about the sixth record for the state, as Mexican violet ear is one of the more reliable vagrant hummingbirds in the ABA area. I would say common, but that does sort of go against the whole idea of a vagrant hummingbird. This is the second in recent weeks following a bird in Tennessee, which was banded. This one is not, so two different birds. The host is allowing visitors. Information is available on the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. Please 
please, please abide by appropriate social distancing protocols. Please wear a mask if you are planning on attempting to see this bird. Let's stop the spread of this virus as best we can while still maintaining our interest in birds. Also noteworthy, a wood stork turned up in Saginaw County, Michigan. This is the fourth state record, but the first one that has stuck around since the 1960s, so pretty exciting for Michigan birders. This is the time of year for that sort of post-breeding dispersal of wading birds, so keep an eye out for those. Last but certainly not least, a potential first record for Alabama in a South Polar skua that was photographed on a beach in Baldwin County. While South Polar skua is somewhat expected offshore in much of the ABA area this time of year, they don't frequently come close to land. Perhaps weather drove this bird to the beach, but kudos to a photographer for being in the right place at the right time to capture it. These are all the highlights I have for you this week for a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada. Check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org RBA. You can also go to the Rare Bird Facebook page. I already mentioned it earlier. That's facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. Or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Here in 2020, birders have taken to the internet in droves, but the adoption of perhaps the history's most profound technological advancement by birders hasn't been entirely smooth. Uh, there have been fits and starts, but one who has been there since the beginning, or at least it feels that way, has been Mike Bergen. Mike's blog, 10,000 Birds, which he now shares with Corey Finger, has been a constant presence in the birdosphere for almost 15 years. It's been 15 years, Mike? It has been a long time, Nate. <laughs> That's like the Stone Age in internet time. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Yeah. He's here to talk, chat with me about the uh, evolution of online birding, uh, where we've been, where we're going. Mike, it is so great to talk to you again. Welcome. Nate, it is so great to talk to you. It is always a pleasure. And if I can, I just want to I want to issue a mild correction to your statement. You no, know, please, 10,000 birds is not mine. I founded 10,000 birds. I shared Corey Finger and I are the co-publishers, but 10,000 birds has been a blog that so many phenomenal writers have been attached mm -hmm. to over the years, including you, Nate. Uh, yeah, from time so to time. I hope that you feel a little ownership as well. A little bit. Yeah, I, I certainly um, appreciate everything that 10,000 Birds has done. It's it's amazing the uh, the amount of content that is there, that is still there, that people can access. I know that's always been sort of your goal is to have this huge accumulation of birding information uh, that people can come to 10,000 Birds to uh, to appreciate and enjoy. And uh, yeah, even though I'm not not really. I, I wouldn't call myself a writer there anymore, even right. though I do have some things banked there. Yes. Uh, no, I, I definitely feel some ownership to 10,000 birds. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, it's it's ongoing evolution has been something that I've always been interested in watching. So, I yeah, appreciate yeah, that. Fun. Which which came first for you? Uh, an interest in online communication or an interest in birds? Well, that's funny because they actually came together. They came at exactly the same time. <laughs> so um, I did not discover the joy of birding until late in life, in my 30s. Um, and this was in 2004 that uh, my wife and I were hiking and we started to realize that we were seeing a lot of cool birds didn't know their names. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to put the name to the face, as it were. And we picked Very up our first story. field guide, yeah. the you know, <laughs> National Geographic, Eastern United States. 
And I like to joke how that killed our hiking career because then suddenly <laughs> I couldn't travel more than 10 feet without stopping. I'm like, what is that? Yeah. What is that? But I got the burning bug. At the same time, blogging was just becoming a thing. This was the, yeah. this was the, you go back to the most famous original blogs. There was um, like Julie and Julia uh, mm -hmm. th that became a movie and, and it just, everybody was staking space in this wild west of the internet. And I thought, boy, blogging is cool. So I went out, I purchased Microsoft front page. This was before <laughs> WordPress. I mean, like they, there wasn't even blogging yeah. software. That was actually kind of hard to blog back then. Yeah. yeah. And I started working on a test preparation. Test prep is my industry. And I was working on a test preparation blog. And then it turned out that that there was a conflict of interest with my day job. So I was like, all right, I'm not going to do that. But I'm an educator at heart. And I'm learning something new every day about birding. Why don't I create a website? where I can share what I'm learning, and that will just force me. I don't know if anybody's gonna read it, because who mm. reads blogs anyway? This is a new thing. <laughs> but I don't know if anybody's gonna read it. I'm gonna start it, I'm gonna write every day, I'm gonna talk about what I'm seeing, I'm gonna talk about what I'm observing, and see where that takes me. And it was such a smart idea, because I was so motivated to to have something yeah. to say every day that I'd go out, I'd do research, I'd start meeting other people online again in this wild west and things just grew. Yeah, it is funny. You know, um it was difficult to blog, so there was sort of a a learning curve that you had to put yourself through before you could even start producing stuff online. And um once you staked that claim, you know, you had the audience at your disposal, like you were the only game in town to some extent. And so you could you could build an audience in, in a very organic way. I think the the idea of someone just beginning to bird and sort of going through all the motions and, and learning all these things, it's one that a lot of people are going to be interested in. And it wasn't very long before there were a lot of other people blogging about birds as well. That's exactly right. Inspired and was, by this. Yeah. Well, it was amazing because, right, we forget that before Facebook, <laughs> before even MySpace, <laughs> blogs were the original diaries, the original online diaries. If you wanted to yeah. tell people what you ate for lunch, you'd start a blog. <laughs> you had no place else to put that picture of a sandwich. Right. So everybody yeah. got, and they were like, yeah, I sew, so I'm going to start a sewing blog. I, you know, I take photographs. This is my place to put it. A lot of naturalists came out, not just birders, but... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, herpers and entomologists and just field biologists of every stripe. And then the larger science community, everybody came together and coalesced and, and the proliferation of those nature blogs was brilliant because yeah. suddenly we all had access to streams of content that did not previously exist. If you wanted yes. to read somebody's observations on birding, you had to wait for the monthly or bi-monthly edition of the magazines you subscribed to. Right. Oh, you'd have to read a book. And yes. Ken Kaufman just wasn't that prolific to keep up every- <laughs> Right, with, with every what you wanted, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the rise of nature blogs, just as in every other niche, filled this incredible demand and also led to a a, a network Right. And, yeah. and, you know, like then eventually we started the Nature Blog Network and there were mm -hmm. thousands of blogs around the world right. that were connected to it. Yeah. But it was more the real the ties that people made who were writing, 
who then sought each other out at conferences, who met in the field. I remember when um, the first time I met you in person is when I was speaking at the first science blogging conference in yeah, North Carolina, and we went birding, and it was so fantastic. We, we went and got red cockaded woodpecker and like missed an entire uh, segment of, <laughs> I think there was a uh, nature blogging thing that was going on that you were supposed to miss that we actually skipped because we wanted to get the red cockaded yeah, woodpecker. Yeah, I mean, you got to have priorities. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> blogging comes second to birds. Yeah, and one of the things that I really loved about it was that it was suddenly all these voices, which before then probably would not have gotten people who necessarily wouldn't have gotten uh, book deals or people who wouldn't necessarily have thought to submit their stuff to magazines. And, you know, magazines only have a limited amount of space anyway, and right. the Internet is like unlimited in, in its scope, uh, were, were writing and writing well. I mean, there were a lot of really great writers and photographers and naturalists out there who were suddenly getting attention that they probably didn't have before and well-deserved. I mean, it really felt like a meritocracy out there. And Absolutely. when I think back on the uh, on the stages of the internet at that kind of post-WordPress, pre-Facebook era in the late you know 2005 to 2010-ish or so, the it was probably my age. favorite age of the internet. Yes. Yeah, because of that. <laughs> yes. And you're right. I yeah. mean, Facebook... Facebook has done so much to democratize the sharing of content, mm -hmm. but that was the beginning of the end for blogging. And it's not to yeah. say that blogging has gone away. Someone has to create the content you share on Facebook. That's exactly right. It's yeah. not It's not what it used to be. And that's why we realized at a certain point consolidation was the way to go. And that's why, mm -hmm. you know, so many people had individual blogs and then we started to coalesce and create group blogs. And even today, most people who are bird blogging are doing it as a group yeah. you know i mean there are individuals out there but it's really hard to be heard in yeah, today's environment is. because now we have such a wealth of content you could, mm -hmm. it's hard to cut through yeah so so what is the secret to Ten Thousand birds staying power you know we're talking about so many blogs have come and gone over the years my own blog is 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 dead the drink uh, for the most bird. part the drinking bird. It still exists out there on the internet. It's a little hard to find because I let the uh, URL lapse and it got picked up by some uh, Japanese <laughs> soap company. And now when you go to the drinkingbirdblog.com, it's like, yeah, you don't know what's going on. But um, but you and Corey have been you know, remarkably consistent at a time when social media has sucked up so much of the energy that used to motivate bloggers, you know, for better or for worse. Um, how, how have you done that? I appreciate you saying that. Um, you know, it hasn't been easy. Mm -hmm. to maintain the blog, but not for the reasons that you'd think. The, the real challenges in maintaining the blog over this time has been dealing with hackers and spammers. Yeah. We've the, the site has been infiltrated by malware so many times. It's been torn down. It's just, mm -hmm. just last week, we had yeah. a problem where our yeah. web host basically disappeared. Um, <laughs> the site was up, but the Web, but the web server was starting to disintegrate, so I had to get another web host to kind of rip it out, <laughs> steal yeah. it out, yeah. um, and I still haven't heard from them. So transplant surgery. Yeah. So these <laughs> there are these weird technical issues that come, especially when you're popular. You know, ten thousand birds at a certain point, where you know we'd have a million visitors a year, mm. was just like we were a prime target for every spammer in the world. But that said, the idea that when you start something and it has success and it attracts so many amazing people over so much time and builds a readership, it's hard to let it go. So yeah. we've we've fought through it. Corey and I, you know, one of the secrets to maintaining 
10,000 birds is just our sustained interest in birding. And especially right. this kind of international birding. It's a, mm -hmm. a promoting conservation and ecotourism and a love of birds and a willingness to get deep into something very specific because you can, you can devote a page, you can devote a post, you can devote a series to the most obscure aspect <laughs> of the birding experience. And it's okay because there are enough people in the world that are interested in it. Well, even if there's like two or three, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's enough, fine. right? It's there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also the fact that there are writers that, that if you've blogged for two, three, five years, you might have said everything that you have to say, in which case mm -hmm. it's natural to pull back. But there's someone else who has something to say as well, has a mm -hmm. new story to tell. And what we love is the fact that so many people from around the world approach us with an offer. They mm -hmm. want to join. They want to write on 10,000 birds. And we vet them carefully because we want to make sure that it's, you know, it's the best. It's people that have a story to tell. They have a specific area that they're going to cover. They're not going to do the same. This is no offense to anybody that loves to share pictures of cardinals at their feeder. But there are formats for that. You can yeah. only see so many thousands of them to say, yeah, I also saw a cardinal at my feeder. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, right now we have a, we have a blogger from a part of Mexico that people don't normally talk about birding. We have a blogger from Trinidad and Tobago and not, I mean, everybody, of course, blogs about their experience there when they visit Asa Wright, but he lives there. We have a blogger who lives in China and he's a phenomenal photographer. We have our usual beats from Australia and Europe and England and in the United States all over. So there are these stories that people are telling and they're using 10,000 birds as the platform to tell the story that's similar to others, different from others. As long as that's happening, I'm so thrilled to be part of this publication. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've sort of noticed that the birding community is somewhat skeptical of the internet as a whole. I mean, the traditional birding community. I, what do you think is behind the kind of slow adoption of things like, uh, I don't know, blogging, for instance, because it feels like birders were very early adopters of things like listservs and pagers and, mm -hmm. and whatnot, uh, but we'll sort of plateau and we'll hold on to that stuff well beyond the general public's sort of interest in it. It's, it's sort of mind-blowing to me that listservs are still a thing in yeah. the birding community, whereas like right. no one, everyone else abandoned them 10 years ago. But you know, we still use them. They still are useful. So what do you think is behind that? How do you think we can get birders kind of, do we have really have to pull the birding community along when we, when we do these things? So when you say that, Nate, mm -hmm. besides, so, so listservs serve a very specific purpose for a bird Correct. and yeah. that's to share local information. Yeah. My observation is that some birders are just interested in their patches. They, yeah. they're really not concerned with the larger scope of birding or the implications or the cultural aspects. Some people, they just want to know where the birds that they want to see that season are. Yeah. And everything else is extra. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause, and, and I guess another, I think it's really important to say that eBird has filled a huge gap. They really have. And, yeah. and has also eliminated. So, so one of the main goals, of course, of, of putting together a site like 10,000 birds was to make sure we had great trip reports 
-hmm. because if you're traveling, if you're visiting a place, and I think you and I can talk about some places we visited that we want to share our notes. But And when you do the research for that, you would go online and you would look up the trip reports and you'd find those old British reports and text and and because they were 10 years ahead of our curve as far as writing up their travels. But you, you know, you'd hopefully find a number of blog posts and articles where people described what they saw and then you can Mm -hmm. kind of piece together a seasonal list. But now eBird automates that whole process. The more people use it, the more value. So as far as technology goes, I'm not sure of many people that are hesitating to use eBird lately. No, no. It's so sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. And they're kind of and that's collating so much of what people care about. Even yeah. now you can put pictures on. Some people are mm-hmm. eBird bloggers. Their trip yeah. reports are beautiful. They're they're beautifully illustrated. Corey gets very excited when he adds a new species to uh eBird. <laughs> <laughs> no, my my colleague Ted Floyd, his eBird checklists are are these kind of uh annotated checklists. They're what you would call a blog back then, like the, right. the reports of every species. It's like, oh, this is what it was. These are some of my feelings about seeing the species and yeah. things like that. Oh, and in the in the comments over here, I also saw two new tiger beetles, by the way, and here are some <laughs> pictures of those. You know, that sort of thing. The things that we used to think of as as blog. The only issue with eBird is that those checklists are not as easy to search and easy to find. Oh, you're totally right. As, you can't share um, them adequately. You, you can't, can't find them on Google. Yeah. So you find them specifically if you go into eBird and you manage to access that. But you're right. It's And so there's something missing there. And I guess I just find that we're, we've been grappling with the concept of a burden community for decades, right? Yes. And, you know, is there a burden community? There's so many birders out there. We know there's so many birders, but only a fraction take advantage of the ABA, only a fraction take advantage of any given publication, yeah. whether it's print or online. You only see slivers of the of the whole, which is far from monolithic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like everyone's got their hand on the elephant, that old... Uh... Chestnut. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So what do you see 10,000 birds roll now? Because so many of those things have been sort of subsumed by other, by Facebook or eBird or li- not necessarily listservs. But what do you see as the role of 10,000 birds these days in 2020? That's a great question. Um, it's interesting because as I, as I mentioned, the golden age of blog reading, blog readership, it, it, is is long gone. So we'll never hit the heights that we did. But I've noticed that our um, traffic is actually on the increase hmm. compared to the way it's been for the last couple of years. I think part of that has to do with taking care of some technical issues. But another part of it has to do with the fact that birding is both a solitary and a shared experience. Mm-hmm. You can always do it alone, but it's nice to talk about it later with other people. Totally. And and 10,000 birds, our goal has always been to knit together, not a local, but an international community of birders where we want to both stoke an interest in birding other places and reflect a respect for birding wherever you happen to be. So as long as we can tell interesting stories and continue to contribute to that richer culture, of birding, we're going to keep going with it. I, I have always maintained that birders make better neighbors, that that the more birders you have in your life, chances are the more thoughtful, conservation-minded, knowledge-respecting <laughs> individuals, adventurous people, 
Yeah. People that are that are happy to get off the beaten path if they're going to see something new. I mean, it's just birders are interesting. Birders yeah. are fun. Birders are smart. So anything that we can do to cultivate more of that and contribute <laughs> any little bit to the culture is worth the effort. So I'd certainly love to get through an entire interview these days without referencing COVID-19, but have you noticed that more people are interested in birding or just birds, not not even birding the activity, because they are sort of at home and are looking for, for things to do? Have you seen an increase in certain topics on 10,000 birds, uh, different Google searches that are more sort of general beginning novice oriented. Yeah. Well, I would say that like you, I've probably seen an uptick in non-birders sending me pictures of what they're seeing out their windows. Yes. Yeah. What's in this nest? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, always house like finch. Almost always house finch. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I see more people kind of reading online yeah. because they can't spend as much time or talking about what they're doing. You know, for example, this is hawk watch season and, you know, the Braddock Bay hawk watch, everybody knows the Braddock Bay hawk watch. And I go up there and, you know, we're all six feet apart. It's not, it's not <laughs> like it used to be you'd approach the deck of the hawk watch platform and it was just a throng of people. Yeah. And now there's maybe three. And then, yeah. so people are kind of getting more of this experience online. They're going out and, and they're reading more of things that they'd rather be doing. But definitely yeah. the world is coming to appreciate the fascination of a well-stocked bird feeder. Yeah, that is true, especially with no sports. It's <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable. People are, people are looking for that drama. <laughs> <laughs> you That's can right. get it if, if you watch the birds uh, jostle right. for position. There's a little, right. little action. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so what is the best thing to come out of 10,000 birds from your perspective? Um, the best thing for me or the best thing for the world? No, let's do both. Let's do best thing for you. Okay. So the best thing for me, without a doubt, is becoming part of this community, be connecting with so many phenomenal birders across the country and across the world, people that, uh, I've become real friends with. And, you know, just privileged to go birding and hang out with, you know, you name a person. You know, I know that we're all still smarting from Bill Thompson's loss. And, um, you know, I never would have met him were it not for 10,000 birds. And then to be able to just hang out with him and, you know, be a friend. And so many people in our community, because we do have kind of a small community. You get to know people and you start to see them over and over again. And I would say that almost to an individual, birders are very chill, no matter how well known you are. When you're in the field with somebody, we're all just looking at the same stuff. Yeah. So, so being able to do that and being, and the access to the international opportunities that we've had, Mm-hmm. where a big part of 10,000 Birds has been expanding interest, promoting ecotourism abroad, but also kind of making connections. And so I don't limit my gratitude to just meeting people here in the United States who are involved with birding, but meeting people around the world who are involved in birding and yeah. developing these rich associations. That for me, undoubtedly the best part. And and I'll tell you, like one of the reasons I started bird blogging was to get like bird books. <laughs> yeah, get, right. like people to send me bird books so I could review them, and That's that right. has been yeah. And then you I get mean, to, then you review it and you become friends with the author, and you're like, right. oh yeah, how cool is that? Yeah, it is cool. And, and one of the things I love about the birding community is that um, our 
don't know, celebrities, for lack of a better word, our stars are so approachable. That's right. Like, um, I'm not gonna play. I'm not gonna play a pickup basketball game with LeBron James, but like, I can go birding with Ken Kaufman. That's right. Like, I can go birding with uh, with BT3 or yeah. uh, Julie Zuckerberg or anybody. Like, you can name anybody who's written a book about birding, and like, they're so approachable, and you can go out with them and and learn, and not feel like you're you know, weighing someone down, you not feel like you're like you might have. Um... So I used to be before I was birding, I was a, a cyclist. I was a competitive cyclist. And I spent a lot of time on that. And one of the things that happens when you're out on one of those group rides is that um, the good riders will just right up the road. And you, you won't see them yeah. unless you're strong enough to hang with them. The good birders like I can. I can learn with them. I can walk with them. I can go on a bird walk with them. And they go out of their way. I mean, I got to tell you, one of the, I'll never forget my first trip to Guatemala. And it was, yeah. you know, it was the Inguat, so the Board of Tourism put together mm-hmm. a bunch of birders and it was their their annual birding encounter. And so I show up uh, with my $100 binoculars and, you know, my <laughs> first time, not my first time birding out of the country, but my first one of these trips. And who am I with? I'm with, BT3 and Julie. Hmm. I'm with Jeff and Liz Gordon. I'm with <laughs> Jeff Bowden. I'm yeah. with I'm with all of these phenomenal birders. And I actually didn't even know how good they were. Like, like but but when we were in the field, and I mean, I gotta tell you, like, you know, Jeff Gordon, he was as a guide in Guatemala, he was bringing in birds that had the guides from Guatemala running. <laughs> but yeah. every, but they were all like you know they were educational they were they were teaching me they they were mm-hmm. they were supportive in a way that just struck me as you don't get that very often yeah. in other areas but in birding that has always and like that first experience has been the experience that I've had everywhere I've gone with everyone I've been with yeah and as your own skills grow and you sort of move up into move you know, up in skills and experience, then the opportunity to pass that stuff on through, through 10,000 birds or yes. through a bird walk or through whatever is, is really gratifying. It's I a think. critical part of the culture. You know, yeah. I'm not the kind of person that's going to spend a lot of time with my local birding chapter or be an organizer on that level. That's just not mm-hmm. where my energies are, but right. I see this as part of the spirit of volunteerism that has to animate our birding culture. Absolutely. So what is the best thing that 10,000 Birds has, has done to the world? This, I assume. Oh, oh, this podcast? Thank you. Well, no, well, <laughs> like, well the spirit of, of volunteerism, this no, 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 idea that a, you are passing well, on this that's information. That's what it is. That's the yeah. thing. Nobody gets paid to write on 10,000 Birds. You know, we're mm-hmm. all just doing it to share this experience, to share this passion that we have. And we're trying to be consistently entertaining, consistently educational, and consistently Mm -hmm. compassionate about the fact that if we love nature, we have to show our love for nature sometimes by actually supporting causes that protect the things that we care about. Yeah, you have a history of doing that at 10,000 Birds as well. Uh, If I just off the top of my head, Sharp's Longclaw. Oh, that's right. You know, we were um, a BirdLife International partner for a time. That's right. Yeah. Raising money for Sharps Long Claw. We've, you know, we run plenty of stuff. One, one of the great things about not being a corporate site is we're not beholden to anyone. Mm-hmm. So we can come out in favor of, for example, we can be very much against uh, stray cats mm-hmm. and 
you know, that kind of like stray cat shelter stuff because we don't believe in it. And we're not worried about being unpopular. A lot of people believe that stray cats are an ecological blight. And we believe that. So, so you know, we'll carry that message. Um, you know, we'll run very dry policy-oriented conservation posts mm -hmm. because somebody should, <laughs> and yeah, we will. Right. And not to say we're the only ones that do it, but that's part of our brief, right? You're going to show pretty pictures of birds in pretty places, but at the same time, let's get real. And 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 invariably, a reader says, "Listen, I didn't come here for politics." <laughs> we get that too. Yeah. Yeah, and our position is look, it's you know, you can't have one without the other if yeah, you want yeah. to really embrace what we're talking about. Absolutely. Mike Bergen is the creator of 10,000 Birds and along with Corey Finger and a whole host of bird writers, uh the bloggers that keep that site going forward into the future. Hopefully, it is of course at 10,000birds.com. Thank you Mike, it was so good to catch up with Nate, you. Nate, such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and if you enjoy this podcast or any of the other free resources that the ABA provides, please consider joining the ABA. You can get our magazine, you can get discounts to our partners, and you can help us build a better birding community here and around the world. You get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to... Larry Imhoff of Wooster, Ohio, Jennifer Gill of Washington, D.C., Megan Boyle of Pleasant Grove, Arkansas, Samantha Tomasi of San Diego, California, Emily Larkin and Michael Kendrick of College Park, Maryland, Laura DeGolier of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, Elliot Kurtz of Richmond, Virginia, Mike Henry of Tucson, Arizona, Steve Albert of Cincinnati, Ohio, Josh Jackson of Decatur, Georgia, Jesse Means of St. Francisville, Louisiana, Laura Riley of Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, Mike Aguilar and Danley Overly of Austin, Texas, Jackie Laughlin of New Windsor, Maryland, Tina Cohen of Seattle, Washington, Barbara Rendy of Lafayette, Colorado, and Nathan Bonnie and Ashley Schneider of Golden, Colorado. We had a lot this week. I see a lot of you took us up on that uh, membership code that I gave you last time. All of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you all so much for that. Welcome. Thank you. Really does mean a lot. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. His favorite experience hurricane birding was when he sat at an outdoor bar in Key West drinking hurricanes until he turned a ruby crown kinglet into a Cuban vireo. Technical production is by John Lowry, who notes that when one of those tropical storms eventually brings the ABA's first record of West Indian whistling duck to Florida, it should absolutely be called the Hurricane Paradox. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who note that hurricane birding was much better when they were called the Hartford Whalers, and you could at least get out to the Gulf Stream. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA, oh, and on Instagram at American Birding Association. If you are not in the path of a hurricane, please consider doing the Hurricane Breeding Bird Survey, in which each point count takes the length of the Bob Dylan song of the same name. It's about five minutes. Please don't play the song while you're birding. You need to get those hurt elements. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.